Good morning. Welcome to the first Sunday of November. We're already there. I'd like to encourage um, those of you who watch online. Um, I got a card from a family, a whole family that uh, has been watching online, and it's good to to know that uh, you are making that a habitual thing. Thank you for doing that. It's a difficult uh, way of uh, teaching and preaching for me. It's taken me quite a while to get used to this whole um, online uh, video teaching. Uh, I think we're getting better at it. I think I'm getting more used to it. Uh, so hopefully, as time goes on, we'll continue to be able to minister more adequately for you at home who are staying home due to the pandemic. Um, also want to be in prayer about um, how everything uh, gets back to normalization and uh, be in prayer for those who have gotten sick or been impacted by this this thing. And um, I think there's a lot that we need to be in prayer about. So why don't we all pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. And we pray in Jesus' name that you would help your people wherever they are, for this is not just an American thing. This is a global pandemic. And many people all around the world are having to adjust their lives, their lives and their, their patterns to this um, situation that we are in. So we, we appeal to you, God in heaven, to help us in the time that we are living in, to understand how to be and how to live. There's a lot of emotional reaction to all of this. Some are very almost angry about it. Some are more resigned to it. Some are really actually fearful of it. Help us, Lord, all to, who are your people, to have a good witness about this. Help us to do all that we can to witness to people in the way we behave, in the way we talk, in the way we act, so that the name of Christ may not be impugned by our behavior. May the, may the believers who represent your name all around the world, may they truly represent you in concern and love for their fellow man, because that's why we're here. We should be communicating concern for people that don't know you, and many of them are legitimately afraid, and uh, we need to be able to demonstrate that we have care and concern and compassion for them as people and for their fear, that we can share with them something that helps to alleviate that fear. That is the faith that you have given unto us. We can have a, a hope that is beyond this world. Help us, Lord, to be useful to you in this time and give the grace of God in the midst of all of this to all your people so that we may... Uh, be uh, powerful witnesses for you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to have a communion devotion today since it's the first Sunday of the month, and we always have communion together. So I want to encourage you to uh, get a hold of your communion elements. Uh, you can even pause this video, by the way. You can pause it and return and get whatever you use for communion at home and bring it to uh, the living room or, or wherever you're watching. And when, when the time comes, we'll have communion together. But we're going to have a little devotional on communion, which is what I usually do. I've been um, 
staying in the Gospel of John because most of it was quite relevant even for communion. But I'm picking something up here uh, concerning what the Gospel of John ended with. It ended with the resurrection of Christ and his appearances to the disciples. And we're going to go and look at a couple of other appearances that he had with the disciples in the other Gospels, specifically the Gospel of Luke. In Jesus' um, appearing after the resurrection, God is stating to humanity, to his people, to the disciples, and to the whole seen and unseen world, he's stating something. Something has been done in spiritual realms, not just physical realms, when Christ died, when he was buried, when he rose again, when he reconciled all things in heaven and on earth. So I'm going to try to explore that concept a little bit more with you. But Hebrews 1.3 says this, After he, that's Jesus, had provided purification for sins, that's when he died on the cross, he, Jesus, sat at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's how Hebrews states the um, final work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to go to the Gospel of Luke, and you can follow along in your notes or take your Bibles out and follow along as well. In this appearance in the Gospel of Luke, two disciples were going to Emmaus, a village seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. I'm looking at these these accounts of the resurrection and the appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples. And I'm trying to understand why he did it the way he did it and um, why it seems to have been limited to certain people and only to a certain number of times to certain people. I think there's things in it that we don't totally understand yet concerning it, however, we need to look at this and try to understand what the principles are behind this. Because I don't think that God does anything randomly or just out of chance. I, I think that Lord, the Lord always has purpose in all that he does. So I think that the Lord here is choosing to reveal himself. But he reveals himself and he does it in stages here. And he chooses when he's going to reveal himself. He is... The only one that can do this, that can choose when to do this. And I think there's a principle in this. We are here on earth. We are subject to earth's vicissitudes and uncertainties and the occurrences of life that come to us. And um, it leaves us many times in a state of confusion or in a state of um, uncertainty. But the Lord is aware of our plight, if you will. And he will reveal himself, I think. He'll reveal himself to the people that need to know who he is and what he's doing. And I think that you and I, as believers now, many thousands of years after the fact, we perhaps read this and think, well, that was then, this is now. He's not going to appear to me now. Actually, there is an appearance to his believers now, to his disciples now. But that appearance is different than the resurrection appearances of Jesus when he rose between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven and the sending of the Holy Spirit. So this is a transitory 
phase that's going on between the resurrection and his ascension. And he's appearing to the 12, to the disciples, to confirm to them what they experienced with him so that they in turn could go and lay the foundations of the Christian church. And that did happen. Now, in this revealing of himself to these two disciples, Jesus walks along with them and uh, they don't realize that it's him. They're kept, it says here, from recognizing him. And that's an interesting thing because that means that, that God himself prohibited them from understanding that the person that was walking with them was the resurrected Jesus. Now, there's something in that, and I'm not totally sure myself as to everything that that is. However, suffice it to say that the Lord is with us, even when we're going through difficult stuff like these disciples were. They had just gone through a traumatic episode with watching the man that they followed for years now be arrested, betrayed, arrested, and put to death. And they were walking back home, these two, uh, apparently, and uh, they didn't know that it was him. So difficult times in life dominate our lives. I was just um, talking in general generalities with uh, someone before the sermon here, and I mentioned that when death comes to us, it dominates our lives. We're going along with our everyday lives, and uh, it comes. And it's like the uninvited guest kicks in the door and there it is. And you have to pay attention to it for quite a while in your life. You have to take time out and you have to pay attention to dealing with the impact of death in your life or in your family or in your relationships. And it's a strange thing about difficulties in life. Difficult life events tend to dominate our lives. And we, we need to understand that as a principle of what we live here in this world. And once you understand that, perhaps it'll help you personally and help you to be helpful to others going through things. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast, so they stopped walking. They looked at the ground. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here, there in these days? What things, he asked. This is really interesting. It's almost humorous in a way. It's a little bit humorous in a way, but it's also, I think, uh, full of meaning here. They're depressed because when you lose somebody that's close to you, family member or close friend, or in their case, somebody that they had given allegiance to and followed as the Christ, they're depressed. They feel badly. They've been traumatized. They've seen him put to death. They've seen him put in a grave and um, they're, they're in a state of, um, it's confusion is what it is. I think that comes to your life when somebody you love dies, you, you find yourself in a state of confusion, a state of uncertainty. Life seems to stop for people who experience death. Someone just told me that recently. It seemed to have stopped for them, but the rest of the world kept on going. It seemed unfair. So the disciples here are downcast. And these difficult times that they've gone through, they just told Jesus this. You're the only one that doesn't know what happened in these days. Uh, their lives have been dominated by this. And Jesus is probing. He asks this question. He's probing. And he's causing them to verbalize, if you will, what's going on with them. And that's an important thing, I think, 
in the grieving process. Now, what happened to Jesus was seen humanly as a tragedy. What happened to him, okay, his betrayal, his arrest by his own people, his betrayal to the Romans by his own people, his crucifixion by the Romans, and his burial. All of that was seen as tragic from a human perspective. So they reply, it's about Jesus of Nazareth. They don't know they're talking to him. They replied, he was a prophet. He was powerful in word and in deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So you see that they're, they're really um, impacted by this. They had given their lives to this. And uh, it had really caused them to come to a place of total, uh, almost like you get frozen in time when something like this happens to you. You can't really deal with anything else because you're still trying to uh, assimilate or process the information of the one that you really loved is now dead. And so that's what's going on with the way we perceive things as humans. And um, when you look at Jesus's death, humanly speaking, it looks like a total tragedy. But that's only if you see it humanly. If you see it from the perspective of God, if you see even the deaths that happen in your life, maybe it's your family member, your parent, your grandparent, your spouse, a brother, a sister, a niece, a nephew, a grandchild, a friend, a coworker. When you see those as not just random, but as some kind of a um, overarching sovereign plan, if you will, allowed by God, then it'll help you to process this all better. Now watch. Angels and women, angels and women first testified to Jesus's resurrection. I pointed it out in the live services uh, when we went over this in the Gospel of John. And I don't know if I did this in the recorded services, but I wanted to revisit this point. Why did the Lord Jesus appear to women first. Um, and I, I think in some of the Bible studies that I've had over this topic and over this passage uh, was that I think, and I can't verify this by any other theologian I've ever read or even teacher or preacher. However, I did find a couple of possible references. One is that the woman was the one who was deceived by the devil in the Garden of Eden. And it it uh, carries forth Adam followed her lead, and that's why sin came through Adam, since he was the head of the human race. The woman was deceived. So the correction for that, if you will, deceit, that fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the correction was the promise that God made, that her seed would crush the head of the serpent. We know from Galatians that that seed was Jesus Christ, singular. He was the promised Messiah. And he, the resurrected Messiah, appears first to a woman since it was a woman who was first deceived by the serpent. And I think that is significant. He appears to a woman and the women of the disciples, the, group, the disciples group, and they, in turn, these women, they go back and they report to the disciples that they've seen him alive. And it says very pointedly that they didn't believe, that the disciples thought that they were um, a little bit affected or, or having some kind of 
problem, psychologically, whatever it was they thought, they didn't believe it. And Jesus, when he finally does appear to them in the other Gospels, it says that he rebukes them for their lack of belief to believe what uh, was told to them. Now, in Luke here, we pick up the story again. They're still talking to Jesus. What is more? It is the third day since all of this took place, since they took Jesus, since they crucified him. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. They didn't find his body. Then they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman said, women said, but him they did not see. So angels and women saw the resurrected Jesus first, okay? Two angels told the women when they visited the grave. They went to anoint his body, as we learned in the Gospel of John. And two angels appeared and told them he was alive. And Mary Magdalene had run off and then came back. And then Jesus appeared to her. So this first testimony to the resurrection is significant, I think, because the Lord is reconciling all things to himself, it says later in the New Testament. He is reversing the curse that came upon Adam and Eve and all humanity due to them listening to the serpent who beguiled, it says in, the, in Timothy, the woman, and Adam followed with open eyes. So it's really important, I think, that we see that because the Lord Jesus Christ's appearance to women first, I think, has profound meaning. Um, the whole Bible points to the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole Bible, it's a history book. Uh, when it speaks of science, it's correct. When it speaks of astronomy, it's correct. When, it's, when it speaks of um, anything that is um, not covered in it or implied, it is correct. The Bible isn't a science book. It isn't a technical book per se. And it isn't really a, um, a guidebook for technology. However, when it does speak of these kinds of things, it has total truth about it because God created it all. But the whole Bible principally points to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I already mentioned to you that in Genesis, God promised that the seed would come and crush the head of the serpent. And that was that promise covered, I want to say, five to 6,000 years of human history. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now that would be a sermon worth listening to. Actually, in the Advent series that we do at the beginning of December through Christmas, we cover all of the prophecies of the coming of the Christ. And we try to touch on all of the scriptures that mention this, his coming. So when he mentions these things, I would imagine he points out from Genesis to uh, Exodus to Leviticus to uh, the prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and many other uh, references in the scriptures of his coming. Many of those references are veiled, and you have to see them in light of the Holy Spirit of the New Testament. But I think it would have been a neat thing to be able to listen to 
And Jesus is actually saying to them that they needed to believe the scriptures because the scriptures had already said that he would suffer and die. But apparently, in Jewish theology and in Jewish teachings of the coming Messiah, they left that out. They didn't think that that was going to be part of it. Indeed, they kind of thought they were confused about what all of this suffering meant. So many of the rabbis began to say that it was the suffering of Israel, the people of Israel, that it was being talked about. But it literally meant that Christ himself was to suffer and that that suffering was predicted and prophesied. And it came to, to completion when he died on the cross. So the whole Bible points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why does it point to him? Because he's the savior. He's the answer. All of us need him. It doesn't matter who you are, what background you from, you are from, or what religion you grew up in, even if it's a Christian sect or denomination. You need Jesus Christ. He is the answer of God to life and death and sin and eternal destiny. You need him. That's why the Bible points to him, principally to him. Okay, now, the Lord is known, God, the Lord, he is known by his manner. How do you know who God is? How do you know who the Lord is? By the way he is. When you get to know God through the scriptures, he has character traits that are identifiable, readily identifiable. Jesus Christ, while he was here on earth, had certain things about him that made him identifiable. And you're going to see an example of this here. As they approached the village, so they kept on walking and uh, to which they were going. We, now, we know that it was Emmaus. Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. It's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. There's a lot in this, too, that I have a lot of questions about. But still, I think the principal issue here is that the Lord, how was he recognized? By the way he took bread, by the way he broke it and gave it to them, by the way he gave thanks. That was characteristic of Jesus Christ. They learned that from him. They watched him do it when they fed, he fed the 5,000. They watched him do it uh, every day when he sat down to eat with them. It was a signature characteristic trait of Jesus Christ, and that's why he was known. That's how they recognized him. Their eyes were opened. They were opened spiritually by God and by this person is doing exactly what Jesus Christ did. And then he disappeared from their sight. Was he a, an apparition? Was he some kind of a vision? Like they said that the women had seen a vision of angels. Was it a ghost? Like they said in other places in the scriptures, a spirit. Um, Jesus Christ, we know, physically rose from the grave. We know this because he asked the disciples in the Gospel of John and here also to touch him and to give him something to eat so that he could demonstrate that he was not a spirit. He was flesh and bone. He was resurrected physically. How did he disappear from their sight? The same way that he appeared in the locked upper room when they were all together, and he appeared to them in the Gospel of John twice there with Thomas, 
Doubting Thomas and before, remember? So Jesus Christ rose from the grave physically. He disappeared from their sight because in the resurrection reality, which we will all go to one day, we will all be in resurrection bodies. Uh, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. We probably won't need airplanes. We probably won't need vehicles. We'll probably be able to move about God's new creation in a way that we don't even understand yet. And Jesus Christ is demonstrating this here because they're going to take off from the next verse. They're going to take off from here. They're going to run back to Jerusalem and Jesus gets there before them. The Lord is known above all by his word. How can you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Many people strive to have their own personal uh, manifestation of Jesus to themselves or they strive to try to have some kind of a special I am the only one that had this happen to me thing. And uh, I think that that's an error because the Lord Jesus Christ only chose to reveal himself to certain people for a reason. They were going to plant the foundations of the church. That's why. He appeared to the disciples and he appeared to the Apostle Paul. Why isn't he appearing to people right now? I've heard accounts that he does appear to people in places that don't get to hear the gospel like we do. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But I do know this, that above all, he's known by his word. If you want to know God, if you want to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you must read the Bible. If you do not, you will, you will arrive at incorrect human assumptions and superstitions about God. You'll make up your own idea about the afterlife, about heaven, about sin, about morality. You must read the Bible if you really want to know who God is, because God reveals himself in the word. When you read the word of God, read Psalm 19, for example, the writers of Psalm 19, all Jewish scholars, took every letter of the Hebrew alphabet and began with a, a stanza in that psalm. And they took the, the, the letter and every line of the next phrase began with that letter. And they would say things like, your law makes me enlightened. Your law uh, makes me know who you are. Your law makes me wiser than my teachers. And I know you. Uh, you can know the Lord principally and foremost by his word. Yes, occasionally I think God does when he has to, when it's a need for all of humanity, not just for one individual, he will visit somebody uh, in a special way. But I think that those things are recorded in the scriptures. I really have dubious um, uh, approach, if you will, to people that come up to me and tell me that they've met him and that they talked to him last night or something like that. I, I really question that because... It doesn't ever sound like anything that I read in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he appeared to the apostles and appeared to the apostle Paul, it was for specific purposes. And um, he never appears to somebody to start some new thing because he's already started the new and eternal church of God. So they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So what they are confessing is this. They're leaving Jerusalem and they're going back home and Jesus appears to them. They don't know it's him. And then he rebukes them for their lack of belief. And he begins to teach them about all the Bible says about him. 
And what they say here is our hearts were on fire. He was, he taught the word in such a way that it made the word of God come alive to them. It made the word of God make sense to them. It made their hearts burn with fire. Now the Mormons try to use this to say that if you really feel this in your heart, uh, burning in your heart about the book of Mormon, then you know it's from God. That's not what's being said here. They are saying that when they heard Jesus talk about the scriptures, they already laid down scriptures of the Hebrew people that their hearts were on fire because Jesus taught, as you know from reading the Gospels, that whenever he would teach the word of God, all the people were astonished because he taught not as the teachers of the law, but as one who had authority. Because when the scriptures are taught that way, they really do resonate with us. They really do penetrate our souls and our spirits. And I think that's why we... Uh, strive to do that here at Grace Church. And we have heard time and again, people tell us that they're so grateful to find a church that holds the word of God up the way we do. Because we look at the word of God as the only true word from God. And we teach it that way. Now, the resurrection of the Lord is the central subject amongst disciples. When you distill the Christian faith down to its fundamentals, it talks about the resurrection of Christ. Why? Why was the death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension of Christ the central pillar of all Christianity? Because without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then he's just another religious founder. He's no better than Buddha or Muhammad or, some, or Confucius or some other person. But if he really did come back from the grave after being three days dead, and showed himself as alive, then everything that he taught and everything that the Bible guaranteed about him is authoritative. Listen to this. They got up from that village that they were at, seven miles away from Jerusalem, and returned at once. They ran back to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together, saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened to them on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what they talked about. It was the central news amongst the disciples. That's what propelled them, compelled them to go out into the world and to tell the world about him and, and what he did for us. So if it is not the central subject of the church, if the church begins to deny it or begins to... Uh, water it down or minimize it, then that church is not worth its salt at all. It, it falls into the category of what Jesus said. If salt loses its saltiness, it is good for nothing except to be thrown out and be trampled underfoot by men. We need to hold to what the scriptures teach about him, that he is the Lord. The word was made flesh. He dwelt amongst us. He died for us. He was buried for our sins. He was raised on the third day. He ascended to heaven. These things are central pillars to Christianity. They cannot be watered down by anybody. And if they are by any organization of humans called church or denomination or whatever, then that is to be discarded and should be. Now, human superstition, and there's a lot of it, it must be replaced by truth. That is not just in a religious sense. That's in everything. It's in the field of medicine, in biology, in astronomy, in geography, in history. Human superstition and misinterpretations 
must be replaced by truth. Truth is all that matters. We can't fall into this category or this place where Pilate was. What is truth? He had become cynical. He didn't think there was any truth anymore. There is truth. God is true. Jesus said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. All of the superstitions that human beings have about the afterlife, about the spirit world, about God, about heaven, about hell, about angels, about demons, all of that must be replaced by biblical truth. While they were still talking about this, what were they talking about? The resurrection of Jesus. Jesus himself stood amongst them and said to them, Shalom be with you. Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened thinking they saw a spirit. In some translations, it says ghost. In the ancient world, men and women from all cultures didn't have much trouble with the idea that there was a spirit realm and that there was a human realm. They had no problem with this issue. In our so-called modern-day age, we seem to really poo-poo the idea of a spirit realm. But that's interesting because if you listen to any of the modern... um, physics teachers and and uh, people who are trying to understand what the next uh, threshold of discovery is, they're starting to understand that there is some kind of an intersection between the spirit and the physical world. Indeed, the scriptures actually say this, that in him, in Jesus Christ, all things on earth and in heaven hold together by the power of his word. Not, not only is there a some kind of a horizon or intersection of the spirit and the physical realm. The Bible teaches that it is in the spiritual realm. God is in us. He holds us together. If he didn't, we would all cease to exist. Now, the only question is, what are we going to do with God? That's the question. Are we going to yield to him or are we going to rebel against him? If we rebel against him and don't listen to him, then we force his hand. He must separate us from his presence. So they were still talking and they thought he was a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Now that's a legitimate question. Why do we have doubts about God and about what the Lord God has done? Why do we have doubts? It seems to be our default setting to doubt him, to doubt his existence, to doubt his person, to to doubt the, the works that he has done. Look at my hands and my feet, he tells them. It is I, myself. Now, here's the physical part. Touch me. He invites them to come and touch him. Touch me. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Why? Because there would have been the nail marks there. While they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them to further Uh, dispel human superstition. Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it in their presence. So once again, human superstition, he's a spirit, he's a ghost. No, I'm real. I'm physically resurrected. Touch me. Give me something to eat. He does it right in front of them to replace human superstition with truth. We need to do this with all things, by the way. The Bible tells us what truth is. The Bible tells us what's on the other side. The Bible tells us who God is, who Jesus is, who the angels are, who the demons are, what heaven is, where heaven is, and what hell is, and where it is. The Bible speaks of these things, and we must have the Bible 
push out human superstition. That's what happened in the evangelization of the pagan world. As the truth of the gospel came in, every culture that encountered Christianity was transformed by it. Those that refused to be transformed by it fell into disrepute. And unfortunately, many cultures that had the gospel given to them years ago, ago are now beginning to turn their cultures away from it, turn their thoughts and their beliefs and their morals away from it. And back to what's called neo means new, paganism, new paganism. And paganism was vacuous. There was nothing in it. It was empty. It produced nothing because it's all superstition. So superstition must be replaced by truth. Now, the Lord's plan is now on earth and even to heaven completely revealed. It's revealed. I began this whole sermon with a statement in Hebrews that God did this. He has now revealed to us what he decided to do about sin, about death, and about heaven, and about hell, and about judgment, and about human destiny. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. While I was alive with you on earth before I was put to death, I taught you. What did I teach you? Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. He said this often, not just to them, but to all whom he taught. Heaven and earth will pass away. My word will not pass away. Not one jot nor tittle will fail to be fulfilled in the word of God. That's how seriously Jesus looked at the Bible. If Jesus looked at the Bible that seriously, how much more should we? We should... We should uh, avoid the notion of bringing the Bible under suspicion with so-called modern-day interpretations and so-called modern-day discoveries. Because, again, whenever I find something in the Bible that appears to be contradictory to history or to science or anything, I always take the stance that it's me that has the problem with the Bible, not the Bible. He opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. That's a significant statement. And I pray this often here at this church, and I pray it for you as well. And you ought to pray it too, because the Lord Jesus Christ taught this to them in the upper room, that the Holy Spirit would guide them into all truth. You need to ask him to help you to understand the Bible. Many people say, I can't understand it. There's too many these and thous. Well, get a modern translation. There's no excuse anymore. Put it on your smartphone. Listen to it on audio. Put it in your earbuds and listen to it. Start listening. You can understand the scriptures. God can help you understand the scriptures. The scriptures will make you literate, not just in in a literal sense, but biblically literate, spiritually literate. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ the promised one, the Messiah, he will suffer and he will rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now, some people might say, well, where in the Old Testament does it say that? It's inferred in many places, but Jesus Christ, the moment he showed up on earth, every word that he spoke was immediately scripture. Therefore, all that he taught was fulfilled. Now, And when I say here that the Lord's plan is now completely revealed, he's saying it. 
This is now revealed. This is the answer to human need, that Jesus Christ died for sins, and that repentance of sins and forgiveness of it must be taught, preached, shared with all nations, all peoples. That word nations mean it's the Greek word all ethnos. That's all culture groups, all language groups, all religious groups, any group, anywhere geographically, anywhere on this globe, beginning at Jerusalem. So it's now revealed. The only question is, will we hold to it or will we, re will we reject it? Now, in Hebrews, I want us all to read this together because this is the statement about how God has finally and, and uh, totally laid this up publicly to humans, to angels, to demons, to eternity. It says it this way in Hebrews 1. Read it with me. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So according to this passage, God has spoken with finality to us in this world concerning what he's going to do. So his plans are there for everyone to look at. Everybody will be judged by that plan. So it's really important that you understand that concept. Then he continues in his teaching of the disciples in this instance, in the Gospel of Luke, you are witnesses of these things, speaking to the apostles and those with them. I'm going to send to you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out, of the, out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They stayed continually at the temple praising God. So the power of God for the believer is the Spirit of God. The power of God is the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the person of God and the person of Jesus Christ residing in the heart and, if you will, even the body of the believer. The believer is given power from God in the person of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the task of broadcasting this plan that God has put into motion. Now, the Lord's work of redemption, all that he did on the cross, all that he accomplished by Jesus' birth, by his teaching while he was here on earth, his gathering of the apostles, his arrest, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven, all of that work, the work of redemption, it authorizes his people that means any born-again Christian from any nation on earth, we are authorized to be his witnesses on earth and to freely proclaim what he has done because his authority is above any authority. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. Surely, 
I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the Lord Jesus Christ and his work and his commission to the people of God is to go throughout history until he returns. It is an authorization that allows any Christian from anywhere to go anywhere with the authority of God and within the norms of human law and everything, if you will. We are to be subject to authorities, but to this, only to the extent where they um, don't interfere with us proclaiming who and what he is. For example, in China, believers there, it's against the law to preach and to teach in the name of Jesus. In the Middle East, it's against the law to preach and teach in the name of Jesus. So they have to do it, and they have to adapt to that environment secretly or however God allows them to do it. So we are authorized, and his work of redemption authorizes all of us to do what he has commissioned us to do. So let us pray. How we thank you, Lord, for what you have done. We don't understand everything, and we don't understand all of your doings, how you do things, why you do things, and when you do things. But we do know that you are God, and you are perfect, and you have no sin. We cannot charge you with error. Indeed, you came to right the errors of our world, of our state of existence. You came to give yourself for our error and our sin. Help us, Lord, as we take communion to refer ourselves once again back to the cross where our salvation was accomplished, where our sins were paid for, where the blood of Christ was shed to not just cover but to cleanse us from sin and to give us an eternal hope. In Jesus' name, amen.